Hello, friends, colleagues, and clients. I am really excited to get to share this conversation today with you with someone who I believe is one of the best kept secrets, if not the best kept secret, in the wealth management industry today. He runs a successful consulting company that focuses on helping advisors and firms rethink client acquisition in our modern digital age. He also has a trademarked process called trust stacking that helps advisors get really clear on the problems that they actually solve for their clients. And then he uses those two things to create winning digital marketing strategies that have moved hundreds of millions of dollars of new assets under management and millions of dollars of fee-based planning revenue every year. But besides the success that he's helped his advisors achieve, I think what's more important in this conversation is to gain an understanding of the vantage point that he brings to the table from having worked with thousands of advisors all across the US and Canada, specifically around the challenges advisors and firms are facing today and the brokenness that's part of the wealth management industry. Welcome, Mark Ford, president and founder of Caster Abbott. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate I it. I am really excited to be here in sunny Celebration, Florida. Um, it is 30 some degrees back in Michigan, my hometown. And you're from Pennsylvania, starting to turn fall there. So uh, just excited to get to have this conversation today. I think you have, uh, as I said, maybe one of the best kept secrets in the industry, soon to not be a secret anymore after this <laughs> video. Um, and I'd really like to just get a sense of uh, how you got to where you're at. So we're gonna maybe jump off by, just give us a little bit of background and hit on a couple of key things. Um, how you went from college to being an engineer to working on a nuclear class destroyer to running a digital ad agency, to being in the wealth management space and helping advisors and firms like LifeWorks rethink and reframe how we go about building clients in our digital age. So take us from the beginning and then uh, we'll jump off. Okay, I'll, I'll try to not take the full hour to do, to do so. Um, so I've always been drawn to the financial services industry. I'd actually thought about going into finance uh, in college and, and my parents just kind of steered me away from it. I come from a long line of uh, engineers. My dad was an engineer, his dad was an engineer, and one of my uncles was an engineer. So my dad was like, ah, I don't know anything about finance, like go into engineering. You're gonna be an engineer. You're get, like, this is, this is your path. So uh, not really knowing much about the industry, the finance industry, um, and not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life at that point in time, I decided to go into engineering. And um, you know, kind of going through the program and finishing up, um, first job out of, out of school, I found myself, my, found myself working on the, these massive circuit breakers that, that managed uh, heavy you know, currents and loads uh, for like nuclear class destroyers. Uh, if, if, these, like, if these things don't work, like really bad things happen. Kaboom. Like really bad. <laughs> got, got it. Uh, so, uh, so train from an engineering perspective, right? I, I, I tend to approach uh, looking at things in business and in life from a you know, problem solution standpoint. So that's just kind of, kind of how I'm wired um, or one of, my, one of the ways I'm wired. So from there, uh, seeing a lot of my colleagues that have just kind of sit at the same desk for like 40 years, I said, no thanks, this is not for me. And I shifted away from kind of the traditional training that I had for engineering, specifically mechanical, and I went into the software industry. So I started uh, working with um, some big software companies, 
which led me to uh, a job where I found myself, you know, working in the World Trade Centers, you know, you know, feet from Wall Street, uh, which kind of took me back to that early desire to kind of be in the finance industry. And at the time, uh, you know, I had a few accounts, and one of them was Fidelity Investments. Uh, another one was Bear Stearns. Anyways, not here anymore. <laughs> for, anyways, right. All that said, um, you know, from there, uh, I kind of got uh, a view of the world from a different angle, a view of the finance world from a different angle. Um, and it was all around what I was doing then was all around data management. So um, fast forward several years, and I kind of went through the, the dot-com crash and uh, navigated that and found myself not really wanting to go back to uh, a traditional corporate career, um, which, which led me to starting a, um, uh, an online real estate brokerage. Hmm. And in the first two years, we, we grew that to the second highest trafficked um, web, basically website for real estate searches in the Philadelphia market. Uh, we were a small team of about 10 people, but we had, you know, the lion's share of the internet searches, which drove so much, uh, so much opportunity to the business. Uh, we had to basically sell off opportunity to other brokerages because the number one, uh, most searched, uh, platform or company had 3,400 agents and we had 10. So, you know, we kind of figured some things out. Uh, and what year was this roughly? Oh gosh, um, this is probably let's see, it's probably about seventeen years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, so technology is a thing. Uh, online websites for real estate, though, are not commonplace, right? At this point in time, at the at when, yeah. So what was really interesting was we kind of hit the market right when. Uh, legislation went into to effect allowing companies to display all the real estate listings online. Uh, historically, that wasn't possible. Yeah. Like the only way to get access or gain access digitally to the real estate listings was through a real estate agent, mm -hmm. right? So we, we kind of hit it just at the right time, right? And we had enough background in, um, you know, in, in web, in, you know, web searches and, you know, and software, because I, I actually come from the software industry and, and looking at digital interfaces and, you know, how people interact with software, uh, that led to a pretty successful uh, business. But that, that catapulted uh, another opportunity that I saw where m most of the, the experience of actually looking for a home, uh, while a lot of that was you know, shifting to online, and, and it was doing so very, very quickly. What I also noticed was that uh, there, was no, there was no experience that allowed somebody searching for a home to gain insights or data or information about listings as they were driving around. So from there, I kind of saw an opportunity to uh, create some technology to enable home buyers to search for homes on their phone. Now, at this point in time, there were no, there's no such thing as an iPhone. Yeah. Like there was, that was this unheard is, This of. is like Palm Pilot era. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. Blackberry. Exactly. Okay. And so, uh, 
So we looked at it from the perspective, how can we get this information on demand in the hands of you know, buyers? People are searching. So we, we turned to text messaging as kind of a viable solution because hmm. it was cross-platform, cross-device, uh, easy to interface with, easy to navigate, and people just text in property information, you know, request property information on their cell phone. So we um, that grew into a nice little software company. Um, within five years, we had a million dollar run rate. Um, we branched out into uh, marketing campaigns, e-commerce. Um, the, the company was called Quasi. It's still in existence, um, and um, and so then from there. Um, I basically sold my interest in that company and decided to start something else. Um, and so from there, I started another software company in the, um, it was in the, uh, training, basically it was a training platform for corporations, enterprises that allowed them to, uh, create non-structured, uh, training environments for you know their their teams almost like a almost like a YouTube for business mm-hmm. be the best way to before do it. YouTube was around. It was YouTube was around. Got it. But nobody you wouldn't you know ne- you would never want to send your your staff or employees to YouTube to go watch corporate video because that sends them yeah, down got a rabbit. It. Like got it right. Who yeah. knows what? <laughs> who knows? Go what to your YouTube. internal company training on YouTube, yeah, and yeah, while yeah. you're there, watch about you know dogs jumping. Yeah, through yeah, yeah loops exactly. And, yeah, Unicorns and yeah. you know you know exactly. <laughs> So, so then, um, uh, you know, ran that for a number of years. That was picked up by a venture capitalist out in, uh, on Silicon Valley. And, and then I was kind of like, all right, well now what, you know, what am I going to do? I don't know, you know, so I decided to start consulting. And uh, initially, it was it was really just like I was just trying to pick up work and make you know do some consulting work. And I had had a background in you know some of the things that I had done to build um, the you know the real estate company uh, with you know the websites and search optimization, and so I, I knew that world. And in some of the work that I was doing had been done in corporate, I knew a little bit about sales. So I started just kind of working with some local businesses to help them kind of optimize their online searches and web presence and things like that. And that led me into working with uh, a number of firms in the automotive industry. So I worked on a pretty big campaign for Volvo, Volvo Corporation and um, not, not to take anything away from, you know, auto dealerships. Uh, I just didn't find that it was the best fit for me mm-hmm. without, you know, without putting anybody down. Sure. It's just a really interesting industry that I didn't find myself kind of matching up with. Mm-hmm. It's probably the best way to say it without, yep. you know, yeah, sure. There are some great, you know, I did get to work with some great people. I learned a ton and did some pretty big campaigns. Uh, but I, I found myself kind of looking around like, is this really, is this really where I want to be? Mm-hmm. It was right about that time where, you know, we've talked about this. My, my son was diagnosed with cancer and, 
it allowed me to kind of step back and evaluate, you know, what does the path forward look like? Is it more of this or is it something else? And it was right around that time where, it was slightly before, uh, where I had, uh, I had a couple RAs reach out asking to see if I could help them because they heard through a grapevine, a friend of a friend, this guy's doing some really great work, he might be able to help you. Specifically around like marketing, uh, online you know, yep. campaigns, things like this. Yep. And this would have been in roughly? This would have been in uh, 2016. Okay, 2016. Yep, okay. so beginning of 2016. All right. Yeah, just kind of catch everybody up and from mm-hmm. a timeline. And so then as I started to work with, work with these firms, they were small, you know, like 20 million, 50 million uh, under management. Um, I mean, they were doing fine, but not, not big firms. They were kind of small, mid-sized firms. Um, I started to see a number of a number of problems and some challenges they were they were facing, uh, and what was really interesting was a couple of things that I discovered was they thought you know the problem was they needed more visibility you know for their website and things like that, and I'm like well actually what I'm hearing and what I'm what I'm seeing from your your client interactions because we did some audits and things like that was that. There was more broken than just, you know, lead flow, mm-hmm. right? There was some foundational flaws in how they approach what might be considered a, a bad word in in uh, wealth management sales, mm-hmm. right? I, I think there is a misperception of what sales really is, and so I think we we I found that a lot of uh, people in the finance industry. You know, think that that sales. Well, that's that's really a that's an insurance conversation. It shouldn't or, have anything yeah, to do with. Yeah, or you hear things like uh, you know, it's art, not science, right? It's you know, you're born with it, or that person's charismatic, um, yeah. which I don't think is true. I I, I mean, I, I would self categorize myself as slightly introverted, and so I'm not born with it. I can assure you, there's I was not born with the ability born in front of a camera <laughs> uh, you you are i mean but obviously but not me uh so yeah so that there were some there were some things that i saw and and it wasn't just from it just wasn't it wasn't just marketing it it it, it went further it was deeper there were deeper problems um sales being one of them that that i saw and, and it was at kind of that point and kind of reevaluating what i wanted work to look like that uh, I decided to go basically into this this industry and kind of take my findings and things that I had been working on with with a few clients uh, and basically expand expand that and share that uh, in, in in the industry and that's when I started Cast Rabbit uh, and that was uh, October of 2016 is when we inked the company. Awesome. So just real quick for, you know, kind of reference point. So started fall of 2016, give us some just high level numbers. How many advisors have you guys worked with in, you know, in this four year run? Um, you know, how big is your team size now? <clears throat> Excuse me. Just a couple things like that before we maybe jump into some of the other, you know, things that you've seen and learned along the way. Yeah. So I've probably spoken personally with 4,000, 4,500 wow. advisors. Okay. Um, we've worked with uh, over 560 
okay. uh, in that four-year time frame. Um, and when you say advisors, sorry to interrupt you, th this, does it run the gambit of individuals that are in like large independent broker-dealers, large insurance companies, all the way to independent RAAs like you know, myself? Is it the full gambit or is there one kind of more commonplace or prevalent advisor that you guys um, find yourself working with? No, we've worked with, you know, we've worked with guys at wirehouses. We've worked with um, independent firms. We've worked with firms. I think our largest client had, um, I think about half half a billion under management. Okay. Um, and um, but then we've also worked with guys just starting out in the business, and whether they're at Jones or you know Northwest Mutual or like we've worked with guys at Merrill, like. You've ran the gambit. The whole thing. Got it. Okay. I've, I've yeah. seen I've seen it like end to end. I've seen, you know, the 100% insurance producer, you know, all the way up to the, to the guy who's like, insurance is bad. Right. I've, I've, and everything in between. Okay. And at all different levels. Okay. And consistently, the problem remains at every single level. Perfect suspense point. What is that? Or what? Let me reframe. I'll reframe the question. Yeah. You and I probably share a similar um, agreement that there's some significant brokenness about the wealth management industry and the financial advising industry, and and for different reasons and at some different spots. What are some of those points of brokenness now that you found, and what are some of the the problems, as you just said, across all this gambit, regardless of size of producer or time in the business? What are some of the, the more common problems that you see? And what are some of those points of brokenness that are the result of that? Okay, um, that's a big question. You have another hour to answer. Yeah, so I, I think what's really interesting, and it, it, it's a lot of the narrative that I hear in the industry where you have even like books being published by quote unquote successful people. Um, and the narrative is, you know, we're selling the intangible. So that's a real big problem. And I think it's that idea of selling something that is intangible is what also creates a big problem as it relates to trust in the industry. And so if you think about the core problem for, you know, for, uh, you know, a retail client uh, getting help from a financial advisor, wealth manager, you have a, a foundational problem of this is this person has saved for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. um, they have, you know, substantial or insubstantial depends on the view, like who's looking at it, but to them it's substantial. And they are being asked to put this into the care of somebody that they don't know. Right, so this is a this is a big, big trust gap, right? Don't know you, never heard of you before. To hey, would you, you know, would you manage my half a million, million, two million dollars? Yeah, my entire life's work. My entire life, yeah, exactly. So, if if what the financial professional does is intangible. How in the world do you bridge that trust gap? So that's a foundational problem. And after 
you know, literally thousands and thousands of calls with financial professionals at all levels of the industry. You know, I've heard far too many times that, you know, what I'm offering is peace of mind. Again, intangible, very subjective, can't be measured. And so you have an industry that is confused about what it is that they're offering to the market. And so the only response for the, the retail client or prospect is also confusion about who it is that they should trust or should they trust them at all. And how do you compare one intangible with another intangible? Exactly. Um, I mean, I've heard lots of different, let's say, elevator pitches from advisors over the years and, and just networking and talking and, and even listening back to recorded conversations of some of my sales interactions with prospects and thinking, wow, I just really said like I solve problems or, you know, I provide peace of mind for my clients. And right. I think, how do you then compare that? Right. So it's how do you impossible. compare it to intangibles? It's impossible. You can't. And how do you, uh, maybe another problem then is how does the prospect or client actually even know if they're getting that, that it makes it completely subjective. Exactly. It can't be measured. Yeah. And that's why, um, it's, it's really interesting. We looked at, you know, the, uh, the 2019 or young wealth management report that, that shows that people don't really understand what their advisors are doing. And it's why pandemic or no pandemic, uh, market up or market down, you have a massive, what is it, like a third of, a third of the money under management, it's going to move. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, I, I've seen that report as well. I think that's what they said was a third of all wealth management clients said they planned on moving advisors in the next three years. And this was pre, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, yeah. pre-the world getting shook upside down and yep. got it. So these are not problems that are post-coronavirus things that we're trying to solve. These right. were things you guys were going after and saying, hey, guys, there's, there's a big problem here mm-hmm. before this. Yep. Got it. Um, so jumping off a little bit, thinking about these problems and maybe getting a little bit more specific. We were talking earlier at lunch just briefly about some of the specific things that you've seen from advisors. You just mentioned one where they're, you know, they're kind of selling the intangible. Um, talk to us about some of the other ones that you see that are common um, around maybe lack of specialization or how they, how they show the clients the value and, and maybe how they give away their most valuable asset and then charge for something that you know, clients are kind of like, well, that's an, that's an assumed or a given. Yeah. Okay. So there's a number of things to unpack there. Right. So if we kind of go back to the core problem of how a lot of financial professionals show up, it it, it kind of falls under the, the framework of let me demonstrate to you how great or awesome the stuff that I have is, or let me prove to you through this free financial plan that I'm going to prepare for you. And then concluding with, isn't my stuff awesome? And wouldn't you like to be a part of it? Okay. So that effectively is like making a proposal to somebody and they're not ready to be engaged. All right. So this, this, this idea that if I give enough proposals to enough people, somebody's going to say yes. And while that is true, it's massively, it's, it's a huge waste of time. It, 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 and so 
And so the whole, most of the industry has been focused on, you know, working on generating referrals and relationship building to try to fix this foundational problem of we don't really know what we do other than, you know, we move assets from here to here. (laughs) (laughs) Which (laughs) brings up an interesting conversation we had with somebody last night, but for maybe for another video. Yeah. A financial advisor that literally told us when I asked him what he did and his elevator speech was, I take assets from here to here and solve problems. Right. And, and so I appreciated what he said about that. He solves problems. If we can get more people focused, more advisors focused on the problems that they actually solve, that people want solved, we'd go so far in actually fixing one of the core problems of this is not intangible anymore. This is very tangible, can be measured. And there's outcomes to, to that work, right? Peace of mind is a byproduct of, of fixing a problem, right? And so I think one way to think about it is if you, and, and the framework that we use or that we created, we, we call it trust stacking. And the reason why we call it trust stacking is because that's, that's what has to happen in order for a client to say, yes, let's, let's move forward. So I think one of the best ways to describe you know, some of the work that we do and some of the ways that we help clients, um, and I think, I think this framework will help to open up some people's eyes to how they should be positioning themselves, is... Like, let's say that you go to a doctor and, you know, like maybe your shoulder's hurting, right? And uh, what you're not looking for on the wall, on the walls, you're not looking where they went to school. You like, you're not, um, you're not like, hey, where did you do your internship and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that's, you're like, I got a, I got a sore shoulder, right? Fix it. Yeah, fix it. Yeah. So I'm in pain. Something's wrong. Yeah. Tell me what it is. Yeah. So, you know, doctor rolls in and this is actually a, a personal experience, but doctor rolls in and it's like, okay, tell me how long has this been going on? What happened? What happened before? Et cetera. And, and, um, you know, that is kind of gathering, gathering the information so that they can make a diagnosis. Now, if you want to build trust really quickly, get a real clear understanding of, you know, what their problem is and diagnose it. So most people aren't making any diagnosis. They're making proposals. Got it. Right. Yeah. And so a proposal is like, Hey, I've got really cool stuff. Wouldn't you like some of this? Yeah. Look at my, look at my portfolio's rate of return or, you know, look at my team size or, you know, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. This, you know, list of people in our corporate office that are, you know, investment brainiacs and, or, or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Got it. Yeah. So when I was experiencing pain in my shoulder and, you know, the, the doctor was like, all right, well, let's take a look and gets an x-ray and he says, all right, well, guys, your age, you know, this is pretty common. Uh, you know, it's a frozen shoulder. Now <laughs> what my wife knows about me is I am deathly afraid of needles. So this next part will make sense to her. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the doctor says, okay, you have 
two options to kind of fix this frozen shoulder. You have eight weeks of painful you know, physical therapy, or I can give you this shot of cortisone. And you'll probably be fine, you know, the next day. And so immediately, just knowing that, you know, I don't like needles, um, <laughs> I, I asked the doc. I said, "So tell me more about this physical therapy." Yeah. And he's like, "Hold on." He's like, "When do you want the pain to stop?" And I said, "Yesterday." He said, "I'd recommend the, I'd get, recommend the shot." And I was like, "Okay." Right. So that's a diagnosis, and it is a, a prognosis, a treatment plan. Now, my trust in, in, in that diagnosis and the treatment plan went from like zero to 100% trust. Like, because nailed it, I know what the problem is, here's what it is, now the offer is when you want it fixed, right? How bad does it hurt and when you wanna stop the hurting, right? So if we translated that to, and that's an offer, yeah. Right, that's an offer. It's not a proposal. So, if we translate that into financial services, and you've looked at people's portfolios, you've seen the mayhem. Right, the offer is you're going to run out of money in five years or ten years. Do you want to talk about a plan to what you're going to do after you run out of money in ten years, or do you want to talk about building a plan that doesn't have you running out of money, right? So that's, that's an offer versus check out all my cool stuff, right? Demonstrate, demonstrate, prove, prove, prove. Well, and I think this gets to, you know, something that I've seen for, you know, the last few years and, and we've become really cognizant of it as we shifted our business model. But I mean, imagine in, in your doctor analogy here that you would have gone to the doctor and uh, the only way the doctor would have gotten paid is if you would have taken the drugs or taken a medical treatment. I mean, I'm assuming when you went to the doctor, you paid a, a fee to see said shoulder doctor, the sports medicine doctor. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, and, and again, with your work with advisors all over the country and, and different practices and different types, it seems to me that one of the disconnects in this trust gap with clients is the advisor is essentially giving away something for free. Mm -hmm. And I think the clients can feel that, right? The clients are like, oh, you only get paid if I move assets to your firm, or you only get paid if I buy something from you. Yeah. So are you really telling me to do this because it's in my best interest or because it's how you get paid, Yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a big problem. Imagine like going to an attorney, you know, like an estate attorney, just being like, hey, can you develop my estate plan for free? They'd be like, what? Yeah. No, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. So why do we give away our best work, the thing that's of real value, to try to fix this trust problem when we're not actually addressing the trust problem? Do you think it's because advisors, and, and I think I might have fallen prey to this in, in years past, but do you think it's because they're trying to prove their worth yeah. to the client as quickly as possible? Yeah. And maybe in so doing, they're inadvertently sabotaging. Sabotaging. Yeah, they're actually they actually, you know, they're actually pushing the trust, you know, gap further away. Yeah, it's going further. So you have to do more proving in order to, and with more people, mm -hmm. 
in order to you know hit the numbers that you want to hit or you know grow the business to where you want to grow it. But if you fix the trust problem foundationally in how you interact and how you engage with uh, prospects and you know potential new clients, that friction goes away very quickly, as I think you guys have experienced. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our firm shifted uh, to you know a subscription-based financial lending model several years ago, and we had come to this realization um, that we were giving away our most valuable asset, mm -hmm. which was our ability to help clients think clearly and thoughtfully and build durable plans, right? We were doing this rushed analysis, plugging numbers into a system to come back and say, you need this type of investment structure or you need to buy this type of insurance product. And that was just how I was taught, right? That was, that was how I was taught at a large financial firm uh, was you, we called it the Moses method, right? You meet the prospect, you take their information, you walk back up the hill to God, and you come back a few days later with like, you know, a three ring binder, right? Full of pages that nobody's ever gonna look at after this meeting, right? And you use it as this validation of why they should work with you. And the flip side that we've now realized is when we say to a client, look, we believe in having well thought out, clear, durable plans and strategies for how to fix this problem. But we have to get paid to do that. Because if we're not getting paid to do that, then we're gonna get paid somehow. And when you leave that question mark, I believe, of how the client is paying you till the point where you're asking them to make decisions, yeah. right? It, it's, I mean, it's unfortunately, maybe fortunately for those of us that have shifted business models, but it's unfortunately how the industry was built and run and still currently operates. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, we see reports again by like Ernst and Young that say, you know, a majority of clients are not happy with the fee structures they're being charged by their advisors or how they're being charged fees or the way that they're engaged. Yeah, I, I think that's it's it is really interesting and it, and it brings up a it brings up a good point because you know a a good bit of the industry is you know is in this you know assets under management you know fee structure right and so and. And for many advisors and firms that kind of wave the flag of I'm a fiduciary, that means that they have to move assets for the advisor to get paid, which is a conflict of interest. Yeah. So there's a, do you, you, you see it. Yeah, for sure. Right. And from an outsider, I'm like, you're, you're fiduciary, you're claiming fiduciary, but yet your, your fee model, right? Your fee structure is non-fiduciary. Now, I'm sure there'd be lots of people that would argue otherwise. Sure. But remains, you know, the advisor isn't getting compensated unless they move assets. That's... It at least feels like it starts the relationship off from a tenuous position. Even if the client maybe post-engaging with the advisor says, I'm, I'm fine actually if you bill my investment account for your work, yeah. right? That's a client-driven decision because they're already saying, I want whatever it is that you can do to fix this problem or to take care of this problem. But when that's right at the front of the decision factor, right? Like for me to provide you with relevant fiduciary advice, I have to take over managing all or some of your assets. Yeah, which creates another trust problem, <laughs> which, and you know, and I see, and I've seen this over and over again, directing clients to shift, not necessarily leaving the AUM model, but valuing the work that they do 
and engaging clients, prospects on the front end that value that work, right? Because if that doesn't take place, again, it's like going to the doctor and saying, well, doctor, you're not going to get paid unless I take the shot that you're prescribing here. Yeah. Right. It, it, that's doesn't really work that well. So I, I want to jump us off into talking about um, why advisors reach out to you. And you guys have been running, you know, highly successful digital marketing campaigns, outreach campaigns to advisors and firms the last few years. Um, walk me through the reasons why advisors are reaching out to you. When you have that first phone call with an advisor, uh, are they saying, I just need more leads, I wanna grow, I have a problem, like what's that first interaction look like? And then from there I wanna kind of piece together how you guys take them back around to asking the basic question of what is it that you actually do and who do you best do it for and some of those things. But tell me about this first interaction and what these first phone calls look like from an advisor that's found you guys online, seen your Facebook campaigns. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that interaction is often it starts with a phone call, typically, um, or they might be on one of our online webinars or something like that. Um, they're asking questions about what it is that we do. And, you know, 90, 90 plus percent of prospects that, you know, jump on a call with us, they're looking to grow. Got it. Like they want to grow. Uh, many of them are kind of like they're frustrated with all the stuff that doesn't really work the way it used to. Um, Give me an example. Say, Give me a couple examples. Okay, so you know, if, if you're being told to like, you know, if if you sit down with a prospect, and let's say they become a client or not become a client, and you're trying to get ten more referrals from that person, the begging for referrals. Yeah, so that's really not ideal. Been there, done that. Yeah, that that builds a lot of credibility and a lot of trust. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is all about you, not about me, Mr. Prospect. But hey, do you have, you know, who are yeah. your 10 closest friends and family members that make more money than you and have assets that might want to buy? Yeah. 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 So, Got that, it. so that's one. Um, you know, we hear a lot of clients, uh, former chicken dinner salespeople, um, that they want to stop doing that. Okay. We have a lot of people that, uh, a lot of advisors and firms that, you know, they kind of want to get out of that cycle of, you know, public seminars and things like that. You know, yeah. here's, you know, let's advertise to the masses and, you know, try to get people to serve them dinner, or, you yeah. know, do a free well, workshop. Well, I got to imagine that entire well, that's sales done. act, with that entire like, right client now, act, that's, that's gone. gone. That's right? gone. Yeah. Like, you're not going to get you know, 50 people that are 60 plus years of age to show up in a indoor room setting. I mean, it's a miracle you and I are just, just sitting here right now. <laughs> <laughs> we did have to go through high security masks and all. Um, yeah. So that's gone, right? That's gone. Yeah. You know, so some of that shifted to, you know, digital campaigns and online presentations and things like that. So you have a big industry that has been reliant on, you know, mechanisms to attract new clients that one you can't do anymore right now and who knows when that will you know resume who knows but then you also have things that have always been like not very effective i've talked to a lot of clients or prospects too i remember one conversation i had with um with a newer advisor and he had he was tasked with calling 
uh, 100 business owners cold calls every single day. Wow. Okay. This is insane. Yeah. Uh, very driven, very driven. Yes. He had been doing for nine months. Okay. So by my calculations, given some time off and, you know, taking breaks, he had done 20 to 30,000 phone calls. And my simple question was how many of them turned into clients? How many? I mean, I would hope, I would hope at least a couple dozen. You'd hope it was, it was zero, but he's got some really good conversations going, right? And this was over the course of nine months, Mm -hmm. really good conversations. So that is a data point points to something that's re that's a, that's a big problem, right? You keep doing that for another nine months you don't have any data to tell you that this is going to turn around or that you're going to experience anything different. Right. So, you know, after 20, 20,000 phone calls and you don't have zero clients to show for it, that's, you should stop doing that. Right. So these are some examples of like what is continuing on, what's being perpetuated inside this industry, what's being trained, Uh, some of these things just do not work anymore. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, we've been, we've been focused on how do we get client results and how do we do it faster? How do we remove all the friction or a lot of the friction? And that's where we get into like specialization, focus on problems, not platitudes, right? It's, it's going deeper into like, you know, niche marketing or perfect prospects and, and identifying, you know, how do you want to show up in your business and who it is you actually want to work with? And, that, and you know, that's an interesting one because, uh, I see LinkedIn profiles and I'm sure you see it and, and you've talked to way more advisors than I have, uh, where you ask them like, who do you work with? And they're like doctors, high-end commerners, business earners, or, you know, business owners, mm-hmm. wealthy family. And next thing you know, you're like, you really serve well, like 17 different types of clients. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? So, so part of that is they have to just cast this massively wide net, right? Yeah. When you're making 20,000 phone calls over the course of nine months. Yeah. And it feels like you have to cast a really wide net, but the reality is you shouldn't. No, it's, it's like the, uh, it's the entrepreneur's dilemma of, you know, if I, if I, I have all this opportunity if I don't specialize or niche down, right? So if I say no to all these people and only focus on one, right? It makes, it makes more sense to go after all of them, right? Except you don't have, you can't, you can't gather enough impressions, attention. You, you can't communicate with enough focus to all of these people that you can have your message resonate with them. I remember when we started working together, um, maybe two years ago and, uh, you know, I consider myself to be a fairly well-read guy, thought I had my business plan dialed in well, thought I had some pretty clear articulated, like these are the clients we're going after. And I remember very, very clearly the first time I actually got to see your team after we had done some exercises and, and it really helped us refocus on what we did really, really well, what our superpower was. Right. 
and somebody might call it a unique selling proposition, whatever, but we got yeah. really clear after a few weeks of working with your team and going through your process around like, these are the biggest problems we can solve in a unique way that other people can't. But then I remember this, I thought to myself, there's not that many of those clients in West Michigan. Mm. And I don't know if you remember this, uh, but you're like, well, let's actually look at how many there are in the entire US. And there was like 3.7 million mm. that fit this really niche profile. Yeah. And one of my takeaways that I think is a reframe that has just completely opened my eyes to client acquisition is when we think about our best clients maybe being local, right? They can drive to my office. I, I, need, to, I need to turn every doctor in my neighborhood into a client because there's only 100 of them or, or whatever. And then you look at the power of social media and the power of Google and digital tools. And you're like, you can go find every single one of those best prospects. And now there's a million of them, two million of them, three million of them, 10 million of them. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you realize, at least for me, I can specialize and I can get very specific with what we do and have those people react in a way that's fun again, right? I'm not trying to prove that I'm valuable. I'm saying, these are the people we work with and these are the specific problems we solve and how we do it. And they're like, I've been looking for you too. Yep. Right. Is that a comment? I mean, we had a really great experience with you guys, so I'm a, you know, I might not be prototypical, but um, is that something that as you are talking with advisors about this idea of getting clear on who they should be working with and they're thinking, well, there's not that many of those. Are there, are other advisors having that same kind of epiphany as they're going through your process and see uh yeah sometimes with great resistance really well with great resistance in that it's a it's a belief system that they don't even is so foreign to to how they've been trained or thought about their business um uh, you know i was talking with a client last week um the firm owner and one of the associates and the associates kind of driving the the project uh, and they had ran a, a local campaign. I said, this is great. You got great results. I said, why are you just running it local? And he said, well, do you know, the firm owner is not really, he thinks the best clients are local. Mm -hmm. I was like, why? You can't see any of them. They can't come to your office. <laughs> yeah. And even if you could, they might not want to right now, right? Yeah. So like just, you know, we had talked about, and, and you know, this, this story a little bit of when, you know, my son was diagnosed with cancer. So his oncologist is kind of one of the best in the world at this specific cancer. It's a, it's really rare, only about three, 300 cases a year. Um, and people from all over the world go to get, you know, treated by this oncologist. So if, you know, if the advisor truly has specialization or decides to focus on, you know, a specific market. Now you can basically cast that net to all the people that line up with that specialization. And you're not dealing with a small little pool of people. So to kind of take you back to, you know, that conversation I was having with, you know, the firm owner and the associate, and they were having good success at the local level, I said, well, let's see what happens when you expose all the perfect people that you can serve uh, across across Canada, yeah. Uh, and you know the result was they were getting forty dollar meetings wow. on their calendars, and an average you know average first year revenue was seven to ten thousand per per client. 
That's incredible. You do the math, yeah. uh, you know, that scales really, really well, mm -hmm. right? It allows them to hit, hit, hit benchmarks that they would only dream of, yeah. right? Yeah. Faster than they could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. But that's the power of when you combine, you know, focus and specialization and a mechanism by which you can, you know, communicate that, that power, that, that magic yep. to the right people at scale, now you have something that never existed in financial services and in many industries. Yeah, I mean, our, our experience is probably something similar, different story, but when we decided to, I wouldn't even say specialize as much as when we got really clear about what our message was, which we really did that going through your trust hacking process. I remember having the thought of like, well, if I put this message out there, then there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are like, well, that's not me. And they move on. And I'm like, but those might be good clients. Right. And I had this internal dialogue running. Mm. Um, and as we've progressed now over a couple of years, and we've had the same thing. We've gone from zero in assets under management to over a hundred and growing rapidly. You know, uh, the, the interesting thing was what proved out was when we got clear on our message and specialized clients found us faster, our client acquisition became predictable which is something I want to talk with you about, uh, you know, as a part of this. And it really just reframed and reshifted how we thought about client acquisition, right? It blew up all the narrative that I had, that I had to be sitting in person with somebody yep. to win them over with my charisma or my office or my team or any of these kinds of things. And it kind of stripped it back down to something that I think is fundamental, which is I want to be, and I think every advisor wants to be, that oncologist that has some unique power, some unique specialty, that they're the best at what they do and clients come to them and, and say, help me fix this, and they're willing to pay, Yep. right? Um, especially in the world we live in right now where we've had the last decade of the rise of robo-advisors, artificial intelligence, you know, there's, there's, there was a lot of talk 10 years ago about how robo-advisors were gonna put advisors out of business, it's gonna drive fee compression. And, and some of it happened, but it certainly didn't take out the advisor's importance. Uh, with clients. And so I think there's a noble profession for advisors still. And I think that humans, when they're getting ready to make the biggest decision of their lives, whether it's retiring, funding their kids' college, selling their business, I, I fundamentally believe that they want to look at a human. I mean, how would you have felt had you just been looking at a, you know, a computer screen with your son's? Yeah. And, you know, I want a second opinion. Yeah. You, you would have been like, okay, maybe the computer's right. But, but we're about to make the biggest decision we've ever made. Yeah, I, I think that's a second set of eyes on this. Yeah. yeah. And I think that clients feel the same thing. So I believe that the space for advisors in the future, and this is something I think you and I have shared and we'll talk about it. I believe that the space for advisors in the future is, is really, really wide open. And when I, what I mean by that is for advisors that can articulate their unique differentiation and the value that they bring for clients, I believe clients are going to flock to them and run to them in numbers that are gonna blow their minds. Yep. Because that's been our experience so far. Yep. In fact, I'll maybe even throw myself under the bus a little that when we started working with you guys and we got to where we actually, you know, we we got to our digital first digital marketing campaign. I don't know if you remember this, and we kicked it off and launched it. And like three weeks later, we had, you know, 200 some prospects. And we realized we don't actually know how to handle a pipeline with yeah. this much volume. We're used to, you know, getting 10 or 20 referrals a week, weeding them down, having 10 or 15 meetings. And all of a sudden here we are with like 200 meetings on our calendar. Yep. 
and and we ran into operational problems, yep. right? So let's let's uh, let's back up just a second. So we've talked about the need for specialization. Um, we've talked about the the challenges advisors wanting to grow. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you maybe have seen in terms of either false uh, like preconceived notions or false notions around advertising, digital marketing, right? I mean, I probably get ten emails a day now from gurus that you know do sales funnels online or digital marketing and uh, my guess is that other advisors that are out there that are watching this probably get bombarded with some of those things too so talk to me a little bit about why just putting out a website or just putting out a facebook ad campaign uh, isn't going to get them the results they want isn't going to actually be the solution the the specialization the trust stacking like walk walk us through why just yeah, because in the absence of in the in the absence of specialization, yeah. right, you're you're guessing at what the core problem is in the market that you're serving, right. So if you don't do the deep work, and I, we sent you off to do some deep work, and it was the deep end. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, you learn to swim fast. Yeah. Um, but it didn't require you running campaigns without doing that preliminary work. It has nothing to, this has nothing to do with a funnel. It has nothing to do with a tactic. It has nothing to do with, you know, running a, a webinar or how to do that. It's, everybody is so confused about, you know, oh, I got to get my website or I got to get this funnel or that's, it's totally irrelevant. That's, that's tactics. You need strategy first and you need to know who it is stepping into this process of, of trust stacking, identify your perfect prospect. So if you've got your perfect prospect, what makes them perfect for you? I think what's really interesting about um, the space is that it, it, there's so many different personalities and there's so many different people that you know, you can have somebody who's very introverted, very, you know, numbers focused, and that have an appeal to a certain group of people. And they can grow a wildly engineers. <laughs> engineers. They can grow a wildly successful business. Yeah. You can have other people who are more extroverted and they focus on working with sales professionals. You see, like you don't need everybody, nor should you try to attract or try to gather up everybody at least not at the individual advisor level, mm -hmm. right? That's it's crazy. Yeah. So the deep work is, is the market research. You gotta know, you gotta know what problem you're solving. If you don't, you're just like, I offer peace of mind to my clients. Well, okay, you and a thousand other advisors. And life coaches and pastors and yeah, rabbis. Exactly, yeah. oh, exactly, Got it. right? So that's really foundational. Um, so what, ha what I see over and over again is, um, can you just show me the template? Can you just give me the, the message? Easy button. Yeah. And it's like, well, you don't know, you don't know anything about your business. You don't know anything about your clients. There, there's no easy button. Like if, if, if you don't know who your clients are, who your perfect prospects are, how in the world are you going to ask somebody else to figure that out for you? Like you have a foundational like crack in the foundation. If you don't fix that, your house is going to collapse or it's just, you're not going to be able to build up anything on top of it. Right? So over and over again, fix the foundation and then you can, 
then you can build anything you want on top of it. You can scale out across multiple niche ver uh, industries, mar markets, but you got to master one. Yeah. You got to know what the problem is. So that's really the foundation of trust stacking is you got to know the problem specific to the perfect prospect that you want to be attracting into your business. And when you fix that and when you identify that, well, that's when the magic happens. That's when you can apply, you know, funnels, webinars, automation, all this other stuff. You can deploy the, the, the technology yeah. that creates the scale and predictability. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But imagine scaling, imagine trying to scale something that nobody wants. What are you going to get? A loser. You're going to get nothing. You're going to get stuff out there that nobody wants. And that's what happens a lot of times when people try to try to jump into this world of, of, of marketing or advertising. Um, if you offer something nobody wants. They just have the false notion that if they get it out there, that, that it's going to work. Field of dreams, right? They're going to build the funnel or they're going to build the website. Magically, people are going to show up there. And then it doesn't happen. And then like, oh, I tried that. That doesn't work. Right. right. Or something like that. Yeah. I mean, people conclude that yeah. incorrectly. How many times? So I was, let's see. So I'm on my 14th year of being in the financial services, something like this. How many times have you ran across guys like me that have been 10 plus years in the business that thought they knew who their best prospects were or their best clients? Um, thought they were really good at sales. Um, oh, okay. And then you guys started working with them. And you can use my story in this because I'm perfectly fine sharing with people where I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and I didn't actually think I knew everything, but I thought we had it really dialed in. Like we were successful. Yeah. Uh, we, we weren't, you know, truly newbies. We weren't, you know, green behind the ears. Yeah. How many times do you run into advisors like me that go through this process and all of a sudden realize I'm actually really good at working with these people and I like these people. And then I have a, a, a kind of sales and pipeline management process yeah. problem or issue. So let's talk about that a little so, bit. So the majority of our clients don't know their ideal, who their ideal prospect is or don't know who their ideal client is. Um, some do, majority don't. It's, it's probably 90% don't, 10% do. Um, the 10% that do, it. Uh, a lot of times, while they may know the client that they want to serve or attract, they actually don't know what the problem is, mm -hmm. right? So then even a smaller percentage of those people who do know who their client is actually know the problem that they're fixing or solving, right? So vast majority don't. They might have a general idea. So that's got to get fixed. But then as it relates to, there is a, a false belief and I've never, and this is true 100% of the time. <laughs> I can predict this with 100% certainty that uh, every client of ours had, did not have a good sales process in place. 100%. Interesting. And about 100% of them believe that they did. So. Guilty. <laughs> so we had this conversation yeah. and we predicted it before it happened. Yeah. Right. We were like, okay, you're going to need to improve your sales process. And you're like, okay, you know, engineer dude, yeah. you know, yeah. that's cool, but we got this. Right. I've know. been closing deals since I was six. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I, yeah, we got this. Right. So 
again, it goes back to the trust problem. So somebody showing up as a referral is going to show up differently than somebody coming through some digital mechanism, uh, through some pipeline, through some funnel. They're showing up differently. Yeah. When you have a, a referral, right, and most advisors, that's the majority of where they're getting their business, you know, they, they are essentially borrowing trust from, from their client, right? And they're passing it to this referral and the referral is coming in because they're on borrowed trust. And so to move them from, let's say, you know, zero to a hundred, hundred percent trust being like, let's go, let's, let's do go, this. let's yeah. do this. They're coming in at like 70, 80%. Got it. Right. And so if you just do some free work, chances are they'll become a client. It's not, and that's why a lot of advisors are like, oh, I'm, I'm really great. You know, just get me in front of a client or prospect. And a super high closing ratio. 80 to 90%. I'm like, you don't see enough people. And the people you do see are mostly all referrals. Yeah. So we don't know, or you don't know, if you actually are any good at what we might consider a sales process. And, and this is what, where it gets really interesting is because, again, this goes back to, you know, this trust problem that has to be solved. That sales process has to, has to look more like diagnosis and prescription because otherwise, right, if you prescribe without any diagnosis in the medical industry, we call that malpractice, lawsuits, bad things, losing licenses. Yet, in the financial services industry, we have people giving prescriptions over and over and over again without any diagnosis. And there's a reason why you know, there is uh, a, a low trust or a lack of trust. There's a reason why you know, people say, well, you know, according to polls and research, the CPA is the most trusted advisor. They're approaching it from a very different frame. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. They're like, let's keep you out of jail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the result of not doing your taxes is you might go to jail. Yeah. The result of not doing your financial plan is you might run out of money or you might have a financial issue, but it's harder. It's, it's, it's not happening every year, year after year after year. Yeah. yeah. And so we can predict over and over and over again, and we'll tell clients this, like we told, like we had this conversation, um, you're gonna need to fix your sales process as, you know, as your campaigns start to generate more and more volume. And I think you guys experienced that. You had this huge volume of, of prospects coming in and uh, having a really low, you know, conversion ratio. Yeah. And, and it's not, you know, some, some people would wrongly believe or wrongly believe that they're bad leads, yeah. right? And that and and thinking that way is makes it more about ego. Yeah, it couldn't be me, right? Because I'm really good, yeah. right? Yeah. You guys didn't approach it that way, yeah. right? You saw like, oh, okay, we have all this opportunity and really low conversions. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with, yeah. right? Us. Let's fix that. And then once that was fixed, then you realized right? You, you had operational challenges to onboard the number of people that were raising their hands saying, I want this, yeah. right? Yeah. I want your help. Yeah. 
right? So then you get into fixing operations so that you can write scale. Um, but that sales problem is, is really foundationally broken in just about every client we've ever worked with. Even clients that have half a billion under management. I was like, can you show me your documented sales process? Nope. Yeah, and so part of the reason that we had reached out to you guys was we were seeing and understanding that to grow a, the business we wanted to grow, right? And I know every advisor or firm yeah. should have a different vision of the business they want to have, whether they want to have a, a lifestyle practice where they're serving 100 clients and, and making a really good living and having just tons of freedom and flexibility or maybe where they want to build an RA like myself and go conquer the world. Um, we had recognized that referrals are fabulous Yep. And, and we need systems and processes, actually. And we've done some of this work with you guys, like how to even get better and more systematized at that. But the problem with referrals is it's not scalable and it's generally not predictable. And so we knew we needed to create that scalability and predictability by having a client acquisition system, right? And one of the things that we've seen from that is the, as we talked about, the sales process. My sales process before was somebody came in and I'm a likable guy and like, I think I am. And you know, fairly articulate. I yeah. probably think I'm smarter than I am. And my wife would say that too. Um, and we rely on that. We relied yeah. on that to, to build relationships with people. And then when we switched to, Hey, we have 200 amazing prospects that have assets to manage and are willing to pay fees. And we found them or we mutually found them. They found our ads and we found them, but all of a sudden everything we thought worked from our sales process didn't work. Right. Um, and it wasn't just the separation of technology, like them being on the other side of the United States from me and us doing a Zoom call or something like that. It truly was because there needed to be a process of building trust right away. Right. Um, and so we experienced that completely. So it's just interesting that you've seen that across advisors and firms. I'm glad we're not the only ones that run into that. But. No. Yeah. It's successful firms, you know, that come in you know, implement, execute well, you know, get their campaigns going, start generating a whole bunch of appointments. Mm -hmm. And then they're scratching their heads like, why aren't these people becoming clients? They're really great prospects. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, remember that conversation we had four weeks ago? Yeah. Where I was like, you're going to have to fix your sales process. Yeah. Now it's time to fix your sales process. Yeah. Right. Um, again, because it, it it's a, uh, foundationally it's it's a it's a shift from let me show you what i do let me demonstrate to you all this stuff in my work and the prospect is coming to you and saying but my shoulder hurts right what does that have to do with you know all this other stuff that you want to talk about yeah and if we if we translate that into our industry speak the prospect showing up saying I'm worried that I don't have enough money saved for retirement, or I'm worried how to pay for my kid's college, and can I still retire, right? They have these things that you've, you kind of helped us frame these as symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. They show up and they're symptom aware. They're afraid of the market. They're worried about their investments. They're not certain that they're in the right investment structure, but they, they couldn't tell you why. Yeah. They're just like something, my shoulder hurts, right? Something doesn't feel right, and so they're looking, right? Yep. So I think that I've also, in talking with advisors, found that there's a misconception around 
how much this costs to build a, a scalable and predictable client acquisition system, right? Um, debunk that myth in your words, because I've tried to debunk it for some you know, friends and colleagues um, out there that this isn't something that just large firms do. A, a young advisor starting out should be thinking about their vision for the future and where they want to go, right? Yep. And then how to build a scalable and predictable system for getting there, right? But tell us about some of the tools that you guys develop, some of the things that you see with results with, you know, when I say young, I don't necessarily mean like by age, but I mean new advisors in the industry, mm -hmm. that they can start out with this kind of thinking and grow exponentially faster than, you know, yeah. the, the old guys in their offices did. Yeah, so, you know, new people coming in the industry without, you know, advertising budgets, mm -hmm. you don't need an advertising budget, but you do need a mechanism to, right, find those perfect prospects. I mean, we have we have clients that are they're getting one, two, three clients a week, and they're not spending a dime on paid campaigns. That's they're not they're That's not amazing. using funnels. They're not using webinars. They're not doing any of that stuff, right? But what they are doing is they're focusing in uh, identifying core problems with prospects in specific markets that they're good at solving. And then just focusing on reaching those people. It's not complicated. It doesn't have to be, you know, oh, I need this like huge like infrastructure in this like, you know, autoresponder system that automatically sends out 50 emails and, and I've got video behind me and all the, like, let's just, the core problem is how do you get one to two clients a week? That's it. You don't need a lot to do that. I would think for most advisors and, whether they're in a large firm or an RAA warehouse insurance. I mean, I would think that the average advisor listening to you right now, that's like, wait, wait, you're talking one to two or three clients per week that fit my profile that are coming to me. Yeah. Without, right. without, without going to networking events, without yeah. buying people lunch, yeah. without doing any of that stuff. Yeah. Why? Because what I would call like the old way yeah. is Try to talk to as many people as you can. Yeah. And right. be as, as many networking events and charity events and, and social events. Build relationships. And I mean, I remember at you know previous church we were going to, I had like three or four financial advisors. I mean, they were friends. Mm -hmm. They'd invite me to play golf. They'd invite me to go hear you know, some speaker, a comedian. I mean, they'd give me tickets to all to try to like. And you were, I mean, you're in the industry, but even before this. This is before. This is before. You're, you're keyed into, this isn't just generosity. Yeah, it's looking for reciprocity. Yeah, got it. Right, and it wasn't unique to just one of them. They were all doing it. I remember when I started in the business, uh, you know, the managing partner that I had at the time, told those of us in like the, the sales training group that as soon as we could to buy the biggest house we could afford, upgrade our lifestyle, join a country club, right? And, and then monetize those relationships. And I remember thinking as a young advisor, and it just took me a long time to get free of it. That, yeah. that seems like a really bad way to live life, yeah. right? That everybody that I encounter in social settings, I'm starting to evaluate like, uh, how can I turn you into a client? Because that's my process of making clients. Yeah. And now that we're free of that, let's say, and, and, and not to the extent that if 
if I met somebody in a networking event and then they called me and said, hey, I'm looking for an advisor, I'd happily, ta- happily take them on yeah. as anybody in my team would. But when we stopped going to you know charity events and networking events and things like this and sort stopped evaluating those relationships for would that guy make a good client and realize that we have a system that brings us the clients right that have the pain that have the sickness that have the issue and they're looking for help mm-hmm. and that was a huge burden that was lifted right yeah. I mean it did free us up I think to be more engaged in meaningful relationships do better work in the things like charities that we're involved in and board positions. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I started 13 years ago and that was, I remember it to this day, I was told buy the biggest house you can and join a country club. Yeah. And that will, that will be how you find, you know, your best clients. Yeah. So, I mean, I always, I, I look at it, I, I break down the problem of like, what's, what should an advisor be doing based on what it is that they want to be bringing into their business in terms of like workload and new client flow, like one to one to three clients a week. That's a non-paid campaign. Yeah. Right. To execute on. That's it. If you want more than that, then you can get into paid campaigns for scale and doing a lot more than that. Um, but you don't, that's not where anybody should be starting. It's like there's, you don't have to start there and you, most people shouldn't, right. Uh, a firm that wants to execute at a higher level and more scale and right. Go really fast. There you go. Yeah. Paid, paid campaigns. Got it. Right. Absolutely. But for most advisors, you know, their aspirations of most advisors are like, Hey, if I could bring in five to 10 million a year, that would be unbelievable. Sure. Yeah. 10 years. I have a hundred million plus. Right. So I don't look at it that way. That's like old thinking because if all you need is one to two clients a week and you'll bring in 20 million, just focus on solving the one to two clients a week, but just don't do it the way you've been trained. Right. Look at all the tools that you have at your disposal and start to see that one to two clients a week is not a big problem to solve. Okay. So as we're talking about, you know, using all the tools available at an advisor's uh, disposal, what about that advisor that says, I'm not allowed to use social media or I'm not allowed to use X, Y, and Z, LinkedIn or social outreach or something. Um, I'm assuming you've had the joy of working with compliance departments in all these different firms. Um, for that, for that advisor that's listening, that's like, okay, so there's tools available for me to do this. Um, help them, you know, maybe walk them through. Like, it is possible to do this. It can be done. Yeah, you can get over the compliance monster. Yes. So I think. A lot of times I, I see compliance used as an excuse to not make any changes. And if that's something, th- there's always a reason. People will find, always find reasons to, right, to stay kind of in their comfort zone. Um, but what I find over and over and over again with clients that have restrictive compliance departments, like we have guys at wirehouses and they're perhaps the most restrictive. Q 
can't really do a whole lot with, you know, their social media profiles. Some can't have, you know, some can have a LinkedIn profile, but they can't have a Facebook profile. Well, that doesn't change the core foundations of, you know, specialization, uh, identifying who that person is, lasering in on, you know, making connections and communicating powerfully and clearly to the core problems that you solve. You, you just don't, I mean, can, does it enhance or can you go a little bit faster if you can do more stuff? Yes. And for many clients, I've been like, look, you got to, if you want to get this going, you need to leave. You need to go find another firm. You need to go start your own. A one, one client, he was doing, was doing pretty well. Um, you know, in, uh, the first six months that, uh, we had been working together, he was a young, young advisor brought in 6 million in the first six months and realized that what he wanted to do and what he knew he could do, he was kind of handcuffed to go do more. And so he started his own RIA. Good for him. And he's, uh, he's doing a million and a half right now and accelerating per a week, month, per, a month, a month. Okay. That's awesome. Yep. So Right. And going faster, accelerating, right. Building. Yeah. Uh, because now he can do more of the things that he wants to do. So for some people it's like, it's time to leave. Yeah, that, that, that's part of the business. The, the, the strategy that they have to look at is, can I build the business that I want in this environment? Precisely. This platform. Precisely. Got it. Okay. Because if you can't, if you can't build the business that you want to build with the understanding that many of the old things that have been taught to go get clients will not give you the business or not produce the business that you want to build. Yeah. You're screwed if you stay where you're at. Yeah. And it only gets worse the longer you wait. And the people that have decided to make a shift, they're not waiting for you to move. They're going to go get the clients that you should be getting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, wrapping up here, um, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to, think about speaking to that young next gen advisor for me a second. And if you could give them a handful of things, two or three things, messages, right. That you would say, look, if you do anything else, like nail these one or two things, nail these, these things, and you'll be on the right course and trajectory to win in this, this completely different world than, you know, what the advisors had 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it's a different world. It's a digital environment. Technology is moving rapidly. Speak to that young next-gen advisor that's growth-oriented, that's hungry. What are the things that they should be doing? What are the things that they should be thinking about? Give maybe one to three things. Yeah, first thing would be, first, you've got to get focused on what it is that you want okay. and, and the business that you, you want to build. And what is that? what's that going to take? The next thing I would say and so I'm going to just stack all these things yeah, up. Yeah, stack them. I'm going to stack a whole bunch of things up. Is take whatever you've been told are your projections and throw them in the garbage. And evaluate what one to two clients a week would mean in terms of trajectory. Right? Mm -hmm. For most new advisors, uh, if they brought in... 10 million a year, 20 million a year, and had a, a system or a, a path to do that, 
it, it would change everything about how they view what it is that they're doing. Agreed. Right. And that shouldn't take you, it shouldn't take anybody to generate that kind of activity. Shouldn't take you more than an hour a day to generate that kind of activity. So again, it's reevaluate what's actually possible, right? Take whatever is told to, you know, was said to you, these are your goals. No, like throw them in the garbage. This is based on historical stuff of guys that entered the business 20 years ago, doing stuff that doesn't work anymore, throw it out. Next thing, super, super important. Don't go wide, go narrow, right? Specialization. Specialization. Learn everything you can about one specific industry, group of people, um, you know, it could be, you know, expertise, generating expertise within, you know, a fortune 500 company that's in your backyard. Yeah. Be like, I'm going to know the ins and outs of, you know, the financial lives of these people, both retiring and, and mid career and, and everything. Like I'm going to be an expert, right? Mm-hmm. That's super important because which is the next part. If you don't have specialization, now you're going to have to, you, you, you're competing against people who, who do have specialization. And you're also competing against everybody then? Everybody else. Everybody. Got it. And they're competing against firms like yours who have budgets. Yeah. They, you know, you can, they, they're spending twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000, a million dollars a month on campaigns. Specific for, campaigns. Specific campaigns. And a new advisor trying to compete against that, you don't stand a chance. So you got to go narrow. Got it. So get focused yep. on what the businesses you want to build. Throw out everything you've been taught or you've heard from the old advisors and the projections. Yep. And think about what does one to two new clients a week mean yep. on your projections. And then focus on a specialization. Yep. Niches make riches. Yep. Awesome. Um, for the advisors that are watching and listening today, if they want to engage with Castor Abbott um, and, and your firm, I know you guys do you know, lots of phone calls with advisors every day. What's the best way for them to reach out to you, learn more about your firm and, and potentially go through a, you know, an introductory phone call? Yeah. I mean, the, the best way is, I mean, there's a couple ways. One way is go to our website, castorabbott.com, C-A-S-T-O-R-A-B-B-O-T-T.com. And, you know, we have a, I believe we still have a, a free kind of educational presentation that people can kind of see what we do and how we do it and who we work with and who we don't work with. That's important too. Um, but you can also find me on social media myself. Like I've got a Facebook profile. You can friend me on, you know, Facebook and yeah. Find you on LinkedIn, find you on Facebook. Yeah. 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 That's pretty easy. That's you can awesome. reach out and message me. And- yeah. Well, I have, uh, I have a hundred more questions and topics. Uh, so we will certainly do this again, hopefully in another beautiful, bright, warm, sunny setting like Celebration Florida. Uh, thank you for making the time to do this in-person interview. And um, I'm, I'm really, really excited to see where Cast Rabbit goes, the impact you guys make on the industry, and um, just the, the life-changing impact you'll have on advisors and their clients. So thank you for being here. To learn more or to watch more interviews like this one today with leaders in the industry who are focused on solving some of the biggest challenges that advisors and firms face and winning in the future, go to thefutureofadvice.com forward slash today. That's thefutureofadvice.com forward slash today. Thank you.